Erwin Lutzer said, one minute after you die, you will either be elated or terrified. The book of Hebrews says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So I want to welcome you to week two of our five-week series on heaven and hell. And over five weeks, we are going to let scripture form our view of hell. We're going to let scripture actually answer some of our biggest questions. What happens when we die? What's it going to be like? And so last week we answered the question, what happens one minute after I die? If you've got more uh, that you would like to know about that, go to last week's message. We explored what happens after we die, but before the resurrection of the dead. So this week we're going to answer questions like, is hell real? What is hell like? Who goes there and why? Where is hell? Is it physical or is it spiritual? If this is your first time to Village Church, there's a little bit of a sarcastic part of me that wants to say, welcome. But, but truly, I do think this is a great Sunday for you to be here because what we seek to do here is not make every sermon easy, light, fluffy marshmallows. We want to form our minds and our hearts and our lives to God's word. And we are formed and instructed by so many things outside of this. And so I think this is actually a great morning for you to be here and to, and to go deeper into God's word with us. The next three weeks, though, is going to be a lot more exciting. And so we are going to answer questions like, what is heaven like? What will we do there? What will our bodies be like? How will, we be different? How will it be different than life on earth now? Is it physical or spiritual or both? So we're going to root our minds in God's word and then have some holy imagination and see what happens because the scriptures say, no, I has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has for those who love him. So I think possibly next, the next three weeks will be three of my favorite sermons um, that I ever give at Village Church because we get to ponder the eternal, amazing gift that God has prepared for us. So before we jump into this, let me say just one thing. I think for me, preaching on hell is easily the most difficult subject for me to preach on. Not because it is elusive or the Bible is vague, because it's not. In fact, it's just crystal clear. And it's not because the facts are complicated, because they're actually not that complicated. Hell is challenging because if you think too deeply on this doctrine, this side of heaven, it will break you. But at the same time, Jesus talks about this subject a ton. And so we're tempted to evade the subject, maybe, as Christians. It's hard. Names are going to go through your mind. People you love will start cycling through your brain this morning. Some of you are going to maybe even like, need to walk out and go to the bathroom, and some of you are going to cry, and I, and I want to affirm you that it's very plausible your tears are very justified. And yet for Jesus, this wasn't a subject that he evaded. It wasn't a subject he minced words on. In fact, he was just so blunt and honest. And, and I really think that's what we should be when we preach on any subject, is just kind of blunt and honest. Let's let it say what the scriptures say. And, but if I'm being honest, I can make sense of hell logically, philosophically, theologically, biblically. I have the hardest time making sense of hell emotionally. And so I want to just come before you and say, I am trusting as I look at the scriptures that God's logic is higher than mine, his justice is higher than mine, 
His goodness is higher than mine. His knowledge is higher than mine. And I want to read a passage of scripture from Isaiah 55. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. You ever feel like that? You look at the word of God and you think, I wouldn't have done it that way. And God's like, yeah, because you're small and finite and you know very little and you're riddled with sin. So of course you would not do the things the way I would do them because I am omniscient and perfect and amazing and strong and righteous and good and sin has never corrupted me once. So are we surprised, by the way, that God has different things to say about life and the afterlife than maybe we'd like? Probably shouldn't surprise us. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, neither are your ways. My ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways, higher than your ways, and my thoughts, higher than your thoughts. And higher communicates that God's ways are, are more informed than ours. They are more logical than ours. Like you're never going to get into a logical debate with God where you win. I don't know if you know that. But have you considered, but what about this? There is never a moment where you're going to have an interpretation of his scripture that he wrote that's better than his. His ways are more just than ours. His ways are more righteous than ours. And, and yet, he tells us many of his ways. And so we have the joy to uncover them and to discern them. And so let's train our mind in God's word. And here's my ask. If the scriptures teach something clear, may we as followers of Jesus, whether we like it or whether it feels good or not, may we trust him, his mind, his heart, and his word and believe him and take him at his word. All right, to start, let's align ourselves with a vocabulary of hell and we wanna align our vocabulary with God's vocabulary. Now, there are gonna be, again, a lot of notes. This entire series is much more training-based and so you can go onto Village Church Digital as of Monday or Tuesday. You can download the sermon, um, but you'll also be able to download um, all of the notes. So if you want any of the notes we have on the screen, you can download all of the visuals there. Generally speaking, the way we use hell, it's a pretty loose term. And so we use it very lazily, very kind of thoughtlessly, but we do know like one big thing that you don't want to go there really and that it happens after you die and it's a place that's not really great. Um, scripture actually has a very narrow use of the word hell. So last week, we looked at this Old Testament word, Sheol. Do you remember that? And so Sheol, generally speaking, is this place of the dead. There was also another synonym for that, and that was Hades. And so um, I want to just go back for a moment and, and re-go over these ter this terminology. And so we have Shades and uh, Shades. <laughs> Shades, Sheol. I heard it. It's in there. Sh now I'm going to keep saying Shades the whole time. Sheol. Uh, which is the Old Testament word. We have Hades, which is a New, T New Testament equivalent. We have a, a word that you won't see in your English, but it's in the Greek language. That is the word Tartarus. And then you finally have a word abyss. And all of these refer to the same place. This is what we dealt with last week. It's the place you go to after you die, but before the resurrection. And this is a temporary spiritual location where the unbelieving dead, as well as the worst demons, are tormented until the resurrection. Now this week, we're going to actually focus on a different place, and this is the place that we call hell. And here are two other synonyms for hell in the Bible. Number one is the lake of fire. And number two is Gehenna. And this is the unbelievers, permanent, physical, and terrible destiny away from God's presence. 
So this morning, that's what we're going to focus on. In order to understand hell, as it's used in the Bible, you really do actually have to understand this word Gehenna. Because almost every time Jesus makes a reference to the eternal physical future place for those who have rejected Jesus, he uses the word Gehenna. In fact, it is referenced to what you may now know as the Valley of Gehenna, which was a very physical place. So we're going to look at three layers of meaning of this word. Number one, it's a very real physical location. And, and the Old Testament actually refers to it as the Valley of Hinnom or the Hinnom Valley. Uh, and it's located just south of Jerusalem. And then later it was nicknamed and shortened the Valley of Gehenna. Uh, it was a valley that burned day and night. If you go back into the Old Testament, a few really terrible things happened in the Valley of Gehenna. For example, if you were going to sacrifice one of your children to the god Moloch in the burning fires, you would typically go to the Valley of Hinnom to do this or the Valley of Gehenna. In fact, this is called the Valley of Slaughter in Jeremiah 19 because of, quote, the blood of the innocents was shed there. This was a place where the Jewish people would go to practice disgusting, abominable practices. Uh, this would be a place that was very dark, and, and what would happen is, is the Jews came back to the land after they were taken out of the land. They went to Babylon, if you remember that. They came back to the land, and it turned into a big, fiery garbage dump. So what do you do with the dead bodies of people who were not Jewish? Well, you would throw them in Gehenna. What do you do with the dead bodies of animals? You put them in Gehenna, in the temple. All of the extra blood, they had a, a, a little um, a drain that would actually drain all the way into the fires of Gehenna. What do you do with your trash? What do you do with your refuse? You bring them to this very real physical place south of Jerusalem called Gehenna. And if you lived in Jerusalem at the time, over the distance south, you would see the smoke of Gehenna rising perpetually day and night. Gehenna has a second layer of meaning, and this was as a visual metaphor for hell. So what would happen is when Jesus taught on hell, he would look at them and say, look at the valley of Gehenna. And that would be his actual physical metaphor where he would say, you know, as I, as I kind of aware of what happens in Hades, number one, and I know what hell is going to be like, the closest physical thing that I could probably give you all would be the Valley of Gehenna to the, to the south. Maggots and worms crawled through the waste. Smoke, the smoke was strong and sickening. Uh, many would say it smelled like sulfur. It was utterly filthy. It was repulsive. And it was unclean. And this is where all the trash went. This is where all the unclean things went. And then the smoke would rise up. And so it was used as, as a metaphor, and Jesus would say, it's like that. Well, there's a third layer, and actually for Jesus, just became a synonym. So that when he said Gehenna, he actually wasn't even referring any longer to that actual literal physical place south of Jer Jerusalem. He used it as a synonym to refer to the physical future place where those who reject Jesus are going to go forever. So when you see Jesus use the word hell, he almost always uses the word Gehenna because he's actually now just using this as a synonym. 
And so it actually, rather than use the word hell, which is kind of just overused, like we, we mean all different kinds of things when we say hell. We mean the place you go to when you die before the resurrection. We mean the eternal place. Probably the more accurate word to use would be Gehenna or lake of fire or something like that. That might be a more accurate term to use rather than hell because hell is so kind of lazily used. So this morning, what I want to do with that context and background is I want to answer five questions on Gehenna or hell. Number one, why hell? Number two, where is hell? Number three, when do people go to hell? Number four, what happens in hell? And then finally, number five, what does hell teach me about God? All right, question number one, why hell? Hell will be created for three main reasons. Number one, because of sin. Can we go back in time for a moment to the Garden of Eden? Such an interesting place. Angels, God, and people walked together, and they could all see each other and talk to each other. In fact, what you see in the Garden of Eden is that heaven and earth, it was one place. Wherever God was, was heaven, and God took up residence on the earth. And the physical and the spiritual were connected in a way that each one could see the other. When Adam and Eve sinned, it seems that the physical and the spiritual were disconnected. And so now, here are these people. Here's us. Are you guys seeing the spiritual realm like clearly every single day? Are you able to see all the angels and demons flying around or walking amongst us in this place? If God pulled back the curtain and you could actually see the angelic realm, you have no idea what is standing next to you right now. I do know that this is sacred space when the people of God come together to worship. I know the evil one hates it. I know there's protection by the angelic realm on a regular basis. I know that basis. I know that we're in the middle of a spiritual war, but here's the deal. We are not able to see them. There is a boundary that has been created between us and them. And many people would say, and I agree with them, that part of this separation was out of grace for you so that the demonic realm no longer had easy, quick access to humanity. In fact, there were new boundaries and rules set. If you're going to cross the barrier, you need permission by God and you got to play by his rules. And there, there were demons who went outside of the boundaries of God's physical, spiritual rules. And guess where they ended up early? Into the abyss, waiting for the judgment of God. But not all demons did that. Some still walk amongst the earth, seeking to kill, devour, and destroy. And it seems that there is a season where this was separated. But it's interesting. You go to the end of the Bible. What comes down and is joined back to earth? Heaven. And heaven and earth are one again. You go from garden to garden, from Genesis to Revelation. And God now dwells physically, bodily, also spiritually amongst his people. And heaven and earth are joined together. And we get to walk amongst angels. Isn't that amazing? But right now, we're living in this middle space where heaven and earth, the spiritual realm and the physical have this level of separation. And we, this was given to us because of sin as an act of mercy by God, because if you saw God in heaven in all of his glory, what would happen to you as a sinner? You would be utterly destroyed. But this is not the way it was supposed to be. We are created to be the convergence of spiritual and physical, heaven and earth, all of it joined together at one time, and we're going to explore what that might look like over the next three weeks. 
But number one, hell was created because of sin, because of rebellion. And it appears that once Adam and Eve rebelled, that the abyss was created, this temporary holding place, this spiritual place for demons. Which brings us to the second reason hell was created. Hell will be created for the devil and his angels. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus says this. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared, who was it initially prepared for? Prepared for the devil and his angels. Now this is not speaking about right now, it's actually speaking about the eternal fire that will be created at the end of the world. We'll get more into that in a minute. But hell is going to be created primarily for the devil and his angels, but also because of our sin. But number three, it will be created for those who reject Jesus. Every person in hell will realize that they had everything they needed to not be there. There will not be one person in hell who could wag their finger at God and say, unjust. I'll give you a few simple reasons for this. God is daily screaming his existence in one of three ways. The first is through creation. You just look at this world, and if your conclusion is that this came from nothing, your brain has stopped thinking to the depths it needs to think. Nobody should be able to look at something this complicated and say accident. Nobody should look at something as complex as the human eye, the human brain, the human nervous system, the human heart. And then for them all to evolve simultaneously is impossible. However many zeros you put at the end of the probability, at the end of the day, the answer is it's impossible. And so you look at creation, and creation is just screaming. There is something big and strong and huge and smart and powerful that is beyond all of this, that had the ability to create this. The second thing you look at is, is your conscience, that the Lord Jesus and every single human being, when he created us, has put in this restraint factor. This factor tells you when you do something wrong, and part of it is supposed to, is there to, to look your eyes up, pull your eyes upward and say, there's got to be some moral standard because I feel guilty when I do basic things that are not right. The conscience is a powerful thing. And finally, we have the word of God which declares to us the truth of who God is and Jesus Christ. But here, here's the reality. There is a word the New Testament uses for those who reject God, and the word is Suppress. Suppress is a really amazing word because what suppress means is when logically something is required, when you know that it's true, when the implications of logic are necessary, the human brain goes, I don't want to deal with that. I can't accept that. And we keep our heads down and we ignore it. And suppression is when you don't look at the scale, even though you know it's going to be way higher than you want it to be, so you act like it doesn't exist and you avoid it, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Suppression. Suppression is being, I'm going to be a little specific here. It's being in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s and beginning to watch your friends die. Sometimes of natural causes earlier than you thought and not obsessively trying to figure out what happens when you die. 
It is when you are watching your peers lose their life and you go, we'll just figure it out. We'll see what happens when we get there. That is suppression. I do not have a category for somebody not obsessing over eternity when they start to see their loved ones and their friends and their family begin to die. I don't have a category for it, but I do. The Bible gives me one. It's called suppression. It's when you take what is necessary and obvious and logical and right in front of your face and you push it down and you act like it's not a big deal. Hell was created because of sin for the devil and his angels and for those who reject Jesus through suppression. Now, number two, question number two, where is hell? And this is probably going to surprise some of you. And as always, I want to be rooted deeply in the word of God. In scripture, hell is on the new earth. I want to I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 66. This is the final verses of Isaiah. And what you're going to see actually is that Jesus's primary vocabulary on hell is pulled from this text. And I want you to, I'm going to put it on the screen. I want you to pay attention to the words because I remember in college learning this for the first time. And I was like, no way. Wait a minute. That doesn't feel right. It felt like a theological conundrum. And I was like, I don't get this. But, but the more I thought about it, I was like, gosh, this is genius. Isaiah 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me. So context, new heavens, new earth, after the judgment, this is the eternal physical state for the believer. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make, that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Little sneak peek into the next couple weeks. What will you do in heaven? It appears you and I worship on a rhythm. Right now we worship on a rhythm, right? Sabbath to Sabbath. It appears there's worship rhythms in heaven. So now we're, we're talking about the heaven. We're talking about the new earth. We're talking about the eternal physical state. We're talking about this place after judgment. Look at verse 24. They, who's they? Those believers who are in the new heaven, new heavens and new earth. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. I want you to just take a minute. I want you to ponder this. I don't understand how my mind is going to understand seeing plausibly people that I love and on the new earth, there will be no weeping and no mourning. I don't get it. Right now, I have a limited, finite understanding of the nuances and the dynamic. But when the scriptures talk about the location of hell in the future, it's on the new earth. And it stands as a living testimony to the righteousness and the justice of God. 
there is a doctrine in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that lead us also in this direction. The doctrine is called double resurrection. And the double resurrection means that what we celebrate at Easter, that one day we're going to get new bodies, the double resurrection teaches it's not just Christians who get a new body. It's actually everybody, Christians and non-Christians. So the first reference to this we see is in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and if you trusted in Jesus, that's you, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And here's what we see. The resurrection at the end of the world is for everyone, some to eternal life, and some will be resurrected physically and bodily to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus repeats this in John chapter 5, uh, verse 28. He says, don't marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. We read this every Easter. He is risen. Good job. And they're going to come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. By the way, doing good in John's context is always believing in Jesus Christ, in case you're curious. And those who have done evil, rejecting Jesus, to the resurrection of judgment. When we look at the totality of teaching, hell or Gehenna or the lake of fire is a future physical place that is on the new earth. And somehow saints have access to see it. It doesn't mean you have to go, by the way. But it means that the saints have access to this place on the new earth. I don't understand that. I'm not going to try to make sense of it. I'm not going to try to justify what emotionally I will or you will or not experience in those moments. I'm not going to try to reconcile it with revelation that there'll be no weeping or tears or mourning. But here's what I do know. The scriptures aren't actually elusive on this. They actually point all in the same direction. Which brings us to question number three. When do people go to hell? And the answer is after the great white throne judgment. Now, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. It's quite a bit of text, so I won't put all of it on the screen. But if you have a Bible in front of you, open up to Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. This takes place after the second coming, after the millennium, at the very end of the ages when all of history is culminating and there is a final judgment where everybody, believer and unbeliever, is going to have every deed they have ever done judged under the authority of Jesus Christ and his word. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, which is, by the way, where? The abyss. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. This is the final rebellion, the final battle. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. All of a sudden, there's this massive physical shift. John says, then 
I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Let me tell you what's happening. The physical spiritual barrier is being erased. All of creation is going to be burned up. And this is the place of final judgment right before the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Heavens not being where God dwells, but the sky and the stars. Verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. We're going to come back to that. But then he goes back to the original books. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. This is every believer. This is every unbeliever. Everything you have done or thought, privately or publicly, secretly or otherwise, will be fully and publicly exposed. And it will be judged and rewarded according to whether you had done it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Everything. This is all of humanity and all of history. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know if it's going to happen in a snapshot. I don't know how this is going to work. But here's what I do know. For you and me, for everybody, we will have to stand before God and we're going to be judged. And really when you get down to the end of this, we're going to be guilty, are we not? How many of you are going to have enough righteousness to say to Jesus, I deserve to go to heaven now? Not a single soul. Verse 13 says, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And remember the sea or the lake is a, a metaphor for a place of the abyss. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, Sheol and Hades, they gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then, I love this, the end of this, God's done, he says, death, Hades, and he throws them into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now everyone else, where am I going to go? And, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The only way anybody ever avoids Gehenna hell, the lake of fire, is if your name is written in the book of life. In the book of life, you do not get your name in there by being good enough. It does not matter how bad people are compared to you, and you might be better than them. Look, God, at least I'm not Billy Bob or Susie Q. does not matter. What matters is whether you have personally trusted in Jesus Christ, period. That's it. Now, what about those? You might ask. I think it's a great question. What about those who've never heard the gospel? What about those who live on a far-off island? Here's what I am convinced of, and we see this in Scripture and in practice and in real life. Anybody, anywhere who is willing or interested, they look at creation, they go, there must be something bigger than this. Why worship the sun when something more powerful than this created the sun? God, gods, whatever you are, show me who you are. Anybody, anywhere in the world who looks at creation and wants to know more, God will either send a missionary or what we see happening in Muslim countries all over the world, 
Sometimes it's impossible for missionaries to get in. Jesus himself shows up in visions to them and tells them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is not one human being that if they don't have access to the gospel, that God will not make sure they get a missionary or Jesus himself showing up in a dream. I'm telling you, there will not be one person in who else that, who says, I didn't know enough. I didn't have a chance. I didn't know. The reality of most of humanity is that we are suppressors and we don't face reality. Anybody who wants to know Jesus will make sure they know. Anybody whose heart is even willing and sensitive to believe in Jesus Christ, who is curious about the reality of it and will worship the one true creator, God will make sure they know. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And immediately after this begins Revelation 21. And it tells us the story of the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And it tells us the story of the new Jerusalem or heaven, the spiritual and the physical converging back into one place, the second garden of Eden as it was where people and angels and God himself walk together. How cool is that? Question number four, what happens in hell? Two things. Number one, furious judgment. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 says this. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins. Meaning, if you've heard about Jesus and you suppress and you push him away, his sacrifice doesn't apply to you. It only applies to you if you believe in Jesus. He says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Revelation 14, 9 says it this way. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. The Bible is unafraid of this doctrine. Number two, what happens in hell? Eternal torment. And this eternal torment has four things. Number one, it's enduring. Second Thessalonians 1.9 talks about suffering eternal destruction. Destruction, I want you to hear me, does not mean annihilation. It means ruin. If I take a toy of yours and I bash it with a hammer, it might be ruined, but is it still all the pieces there? The answer is for sure. Ruined, destroyed, does not mean annihilated and ceasing to exist. Eternal torment is enduring. One of the reasons it's enduring is because in hell, you're not just paying for the sins you committed on earth, as if those are the only sins that matter to God. In fact, there's something that happens in hell where you, if you are there, are given fully over to your sin. Most of us don't know what that means because 
For each one of us, this side of death, we are given restraints as an act of grace by God. Meaning, even though sin corrupts us, um, we're actually not as bad as we could be. Do you know that? And so there are these restraints that God has woven into our lives that you may not know about, and let me read a handful of them to you. Number one is your conscience. Does your conscience prevent you from doing some pretty terrible things? Like you don't want to feel bad? In fact, you're a sociopath because you seem to have no conscience, right? But for most people, let's go better for the doubt. You're not sociopaths. You have a conscience. You have this restraining factor in your mind, your heart, and soul. Number two is just law and governments. That God has created this world and established governments to restrain our propensity to evil. In fact, when you pull the government away, we already know by human nature that people become even more and more evil. You have the word of God. The word of God has formed you and shaped you and, and it plants inside of your soul and it's there to testify against you when you rebel against God. It's a powerful force restraining you. Some, of, some people, they have rebelled against God but when they were kids, their grandma or parents sent them to church and the word of God got put in them and it's been a restraining factor in their life slowing down evil. Family, the family unit is one of the most powerful gifts that God has given to create health and functionality and to restrain evil. All of these get pulled away. All conscience, all law, all government, all family. All, everything that holds someone back from becoming their worst self goes away and they are ruined physically and spiritually. And we're going to explore in just a moment what this looks like. But no person in hell is begging God to trust in Jesus and for a second chance. Nobody. We already have a glimpse of what happens when God gives a sentient being fully over to sin and its demons. It's interesting, we read a passage last week where Jesus finds this man possessed by many demons called Legion. And when they see Jesus, they're like, don't send us into the abyss. They don't say, we're so sorry. Could you give us another chance? Why? Because they are given completely and totally over to their sin. And there is not one ounce of good in them. In fact, what we see is they are given over to vile hatred. Have you ever seen somebody who is just in an irrational state of rage, that is a glimpse into restraints being pulled off. That is a glimpse when their logic goes away, when their conscience goes away, they are unrepentant, they are not sorry, and they are given over to rage. Now imagine being given over to every sin, pride, fear, lust, anger, none of them restrained, the human condition given fully over. This is the nature of hell. And when we talk about being ruined, it is not a place where people are begging for second chances. And what happens is that every sin, it doesn't matter where it happens, God is a righteous judge and they are perpetually paying for the sins that they perpetually commit. Eternal torment is number two, constant. Revelation 14, 11 says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Annihilationism, which I'm sure some of you have heard, is a doctrine never taught in Scripture that teaches that people cease to exist consciously after a period of time in hell when they've paid for their sins. I would love for that doctrine to be true. It would make my life so much easier. It would be like balm on my emotions. 
but I'm not bound to what feels good. I'm bound to the word of God. Eternal torment is physical. 14.11 talks about them having no rest, day or night. Eternal torment is number four, emotional. There is weeping in Matthew 8.12. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer dark darkness. In that place, there will be weeping. And you might think that they are weeping over their sin. They're not. We know this by the next phrase, which is eternal torment is relational. It says that there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth does not mean I'm in pain, oh no. The gnashing of teeth is a sign of rage and anger. In fact, often when the teeth are being gnashed, it's out of fury and intent to harm. It is an inner insatiable rage and fury that before people in scripture are killed, there's a couple instances where it talks about they gnashed their teeth and they went after them to harm them. It is fury, anger, and rage with the desire to kill, harm, and maim. And we come back to this and we say, this is heavy, but hell is not a place where people are begging. Hell is a place where they are given over to the full weight of their sin, and it's something that we don't have categories for now. The closest we get is to our theology of demons, but we don't actually get to see this like we probably don't want to. Here's the last question, and this actually brings us into our so what's. What does hell teach me about God? I've been very blunt so far, just taught one by one, point by point, I have a major concern. My biggest concern, particularly for those who are newer to the faith or younger or who are considering Christ, is that they would begin to believe that God is merciless to the point of untrustworthy. Or that your cultural need, I want you to hear me, your cultural need for God to be nice and fluffy makes you run away from the truth of what God's word says. Or that you would think that God is angry and vengeful, which he is, but like us. Like most of us have never seen holy, righteous anger. And when we begin to see it, it's usually tainted very quickly with selfishness and sin. Another concern I have is that um, anybody would fear that or believe that we are trying to manipulate people to trust in Jesus by a fear of hell. I don't really believe manipulation gets people into heaven. But I do think a healthy knowledge of the afterlife is good information to put in your bucket as you consider what you do or don't do with Jesus. So what I would love for you to know about God, and first so what, is God is rightly furious at sin. Let me, let me illustrate if God weren't angry, and I mean furious at sin, I'd be concerned. You hear about the father recently who found the young man who kidnapped his teenage daughter, sold her into sex slavery, killed him, and is now being sentenced to first-degree murder or tried for first-degree murder. And most dads and moms are thinking, yep, get it. Because you intuitively get fury. When somebody you love, like a child or a parent or a best friend, 
when there, when there are things done to them in certain categories, like there's a lot of things that like you're going to make me angry, but there are some things that you will push me past my limits. Every one of you know fury. In fact, if that dad wasn't angry, I'd be concerned. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment you're God. And you have this really amazing ability to process every event in human history all at the same time and to deal and process every one of them rightly, emotionally, relationally, and everything else. Like right now, any one of you, all of you who all lift your voices up to God, he is able to parse them all out, hear them, be attentive to you, respond, and not just you, but if all 8 billion people on the planet or the 100 billion people who have ever lived on planet Earth, if all of them simultaneously raise their voices to God, every one of them, he could give them individual attention. So that kind of like attention to the details of life, like this is a big deal. 2017. 405,000 people globally were murdered. Every 75 seconds, someone is murdered in cold blood. Every seven minutes, one of those is an adolescent killed by somebody in the world. I think this is such an interesting stat in South Africa. This was a snapshot of one year, 2010, 500,000 assaults in South Africa, one per minute. 2021, abortion. Globally, 95 abortions every minute. And every single one of these, God is personally, fully feeling every one of them. And at the same time, when you lift up your voice to God, he cares for you. 95 abortions every minute. Genocide, kidnapping, Sex slavery, child labor camps, pornography, creation, distribution, usage, adultery. Let's turn to most people's everyday sexual sins, lying, slander, bitterness, gossip, bullying. Can we just take a moment and say, if God isn't angry, I have serious concerns. God is furious at sin because it is evil and it destroys and it corrupts and it kills. And any God who can just flippantly turn, just a, whatever, everyone's forgiven, no big deal. Doesn't matter. Really? Everyone, just like that? Doesn't matter what they do, whether they're sorry or not? Does that even matter? I, I'm actually very glad when I read the scriptures and I see that God's anger at sin is strong because if it wasn't, I would have deep concerns. Nahum 1.3 says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And I love this. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. If your child is killed, do you want him just clearing the guilty for no reason and no repentance? Or do you want justice? You want justice. Here's the second thing I want you to know about God. God is perfectly just. Not one single angel, demon, person in hell will ever be able to wag their finger at God and say, you're not fair. There will never be. Once you know what God knows, on the, on the day of judgment, every person will come to the following conclusion. That was a good judgment. That was just. 
that was fair. And what we learn is that justice is distributed only ever in one of two ways. Every sin will be paid for either by you in hell or by Jesus on the cross. And one of the benefits of thinking deeply about the doctrine of hell is that if this is the just punishment for sin, have we even begun to comprehend what Jesus bore on the cross, on his body, soul, and emotions when the full righteous wrath of God was poured out on him? We've barely begun to understand it. Lastly, number three. God is unbelievably merciful. No one has to go to hell. Nobody. You, if you've never trusted in Jesus, you don't have to go there. A person on an island far away where nobody knows about them, they've been stranded for years, they've never heard the gospel, the moment they look up, God will make sure they get what they need. Hell is absolutely unnecessary for every single person on planet Earth. So I have incredible news for you. God is merciful. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve. Mercy is not giving you what you do deserve. And every single person, when he opens up the Lamb's Book of Life and your name is written there, after you have seen what you have done through the eyes of the holy righteous judge, you are going to be mind blown that he would say, Come with me. You are forgiven, redeemed, justified. You are my son. You are my daughter. And I have prepared paradise for you. Come in. You are going to be mind blown. And that is not something we can just yell louder and make you understand. One day on the day of judgment, when you see your sin in light of the holiness of God, you will believe and understand that you deserve hell. And when you see that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, the, what Jesus did on the cross for you will make more sense than you could have ever imagined. God is merciful, and his mercy flows out of his love and his patience. We say, we look at this world, and it's crazy. Come, Lord Jesus, end all of this now. Every single day, all over the world, men and women and students and children are turning to Jesus and trusting in him for the first time, and heaven is going to be filled with so many people. It is going to be beautiful. If you've never trusted in Christ, my goal is not to scare you into heaven. My goal is that you would see the mercy and love and kindness of Jesus Christ who is offering you a way out. That you would stop trying to pay for your sins because you can't. And trust me, you don't want to. But you would trust in Jesus who paid for your sins in your place. And then God raised him from the dead as affirmation that this is not just some dead guy. This is the son of God and anybody who trusts in him has eternal life. So if you're in a place where today you want to trust in Christ, not because you're afraid of hell, because of the goodness of God, I want to invite you to trust in Jesus. And today, this is a day where angels celebrate. Do you know why angels rejoice over one soul who comes to faith? Because they know what Hades is like. And they can read the word of God. They can talk to Jesus. They have a pretty clear idea of what hell is going to be like. And they don't want people to go there any more than God does. 
and they rejoice because they know what you are being saved from. In a little bit, we're going to celebrate communion. All I want for you is this. We're going to get these elements, and all I want is for you to look at this and be reminded of Jesus and for you to be filled with awe that God, Jesus, would bear somehow something equivalent on his body, soul, and emotions to the full weight of the wrath of God of all rebels in hell. That you would hold these things and realize these are just metaphors. They're symbols. There's no power in them. But what they represent is our God bearing on himself our sins in our place so that we never have to. I want you to remember and be filled with gratitude. If you've trusted in Jesus, you will never see the wrath of God. And you will live permanently under the love, kindness. Erwin Lutzer said, one minute after you die, you will either be elated or terrified. The book of Hebrews says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So I want to welcome you to week two of our five-week series on heaven and hell. And over five weeks, we are going to let scripture form our view of hell. We're going to let scripture actually answer some of our biggest questions. What happens when we die? What's it going to be like? And so last week we answered the question, what happens one minute after I die? If you've got more uh, that you would like to know about that, go to last week's message. We explored what happens after we die, but before the resurrection of the dead. So this week we're going to answer questions like, is hell real? What is hell like? Who goes there and why? Where is hell? Is it physical or is it spiritual? If this is your first time to Village Church, there's a little bit of a sarcastic part of me that wants to say, welcome. But, but truly, I do think this is a great Sunday for you to be here because what we seek to do here is not make every sermon easy, light, fluffy marshmallows. We want to form our minds and our hearts and our lives to God's word. And we are formed and instructed by so many things outside of this. And so I think this is actually a great morning for you to be here to, and to go deeper into God's word with us. The next three weeks, though, is going to be a lot more exciting. And so we are going to answer questions like, what is heaven like? What will we do there? What will our bodies be like? How will, we be different? How will it be different than life on earth now? Is it physical or spiritual or both? So we're going to root our minds in God's word and then have some holy imagination and see what happens because the scriptures say, no, I seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has for those who love him. So I think possibly next, the next three weeks will be three of my favorite sermons um, that I ever give at Village Church because we get to ponder the eternal, amazing gift that God has prepared for us. So before we jump into this, let me say just one thing. I think for me, preaching on hell is easily the most difficult subject for me to preach on. Not because it is elusive or the Bible is vague, because it's not. In fact, it's just crystal clear. And it's not because the facts are complicated, because they're actually not that complicated. Hell is challenging because if you think too deeply on this doctrine, this side of heaven, it will break you. But at the same time, Jesus talks about this subject a ton. And so we're tempted to evade the subject, maybe, as Christians. It's hard. Names are going to go through your mind. People you love will start cycling through your brain this morning. 
Some of you are going to maybe even like need to walk out and go to the bathroom, and some of you are going to cry, and I, and I want to affirm you that it's very plausible your tears are very justified. And yet for Jesus, this wasn't a subject that he evaded. It wasn't a subject he minced words on. In fact, he was just so blunt and honest, and, and I really think that's what we should be when we preach on any subject, is just kind of blunt and honest. Let's let it say what the scriptures say. And, but if I'm being honest, I can make sense of hell logically, philosophically, theologically, biblically. I have the hardest time making sense of hell emotionally. And so I want to just come before you and say, I am trusting as I look at the scriptures that God's logic is higher than mine. His justice is higher than mine. His goodness is higher than mine. His knowledge is higher than mine. And I want to read a passage of scripture from Isaiah 55. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. You ever feel like that? You look at the word of God and you think, I wouldn't have done it that way. And God's like, yeah, because you're small and finite and you know very little and you're riddled with sin. So of course you would not do the things the way I would do them because I am omniscient and perfect and amazing and strong and righteous and good and sin has never corrupted me once. So are we surprised, by the way, that God has different things to say about life and the afterlife than maybe we'd like? Probably shouldn't surprise us. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, neither are your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways, higher than your ways, and my thoughts, higher than your thoughts. And higher communicates that God's ways are, are more informed than ours. They are more logical than ours. Like you're never going to get into a logical debate with God where you win. I don't know if you know that. But have you considered, but what about this? There is never a moment where you're going to have an interpretation of his scripture that he wrote that's better than his. His ways are more just than ours. His ways are more righteous than ours. And, and yet, he tells us many of his ways. And so we have the joy to uncover them and to discern them. And so let's train our mind in God's word. And here's my ask. If the scriptures teach something clear, may we as followers of Jesus, whether we like it or whether it feels good or not, may we trust him, his mind, his heart, and his word and believe him and take him at his word. All right, to start, let's align ourselves with a vocabulary of hell and we wanna align our vocabulary with God's vocabulary. Now, there are gonna be, again, a lot of notes. This entire series is much more training-based and so you can go onto Village Church Digital as of Monday or Tuesday. You can download the sermon, um, but you'll also be able to download um, all of the notes. So if you want any of the notes we have on the screen, you can download all of the visuals there. Generally speaking, the way we use hell, it's a pretty loose term. And so we use it very lazily, very kind of thoughtlessly, but we do know like one big thing that you don't want to go there really and that it happens after you die and it's a place that's not really great. Um, scripture actually has a very narrow use of the word hell. So last week, we looked at this Old Testament word, Sheol. Do you remember that? And so Sheol, generally speaking, is this place of the dead. There was also another synonym for that, and that was Hades. And so um, I want to just go back for a moment and, and re-go over these ter this terminology. And so we have Shades and uh, Shades. <laughs> Shades, Sheol. I heard it. It's in there. Sh now I'm going to keep saying Shades the whole time. Sheol. Uh, which is the Old Testament word. We have Hades, which is a New, T New Testament equivalent. 
We have a, a word that you won't see in your English, but it's in the Greek language. That is the word Tartarus. And then you finally have a word, abyss. And all of these refer to the same place. This is what we dealt with last week. It's the place you go to after you die, but before the resurrection. And this is a temporary spiritual location where the unbelieving dead, as well as the worst demons, are tormented until the resurrection. Now this week, we're going to actually focus on a different place. And this is the place that we call hell. And here are two other synonyms for hell in the Bible. Number one is the lake of fire. And number two is Gehenna. And this is the unbelievers, permanent, physical, and terrible destiny away from God's presence. So this morning, that's what we're going to focus on. In order to understand hell, as it's used in the Bible, you really do actually have to understand this word Gehenna. Because almost every time Jesus makes a reference to the eternal physical future place for those who have rejected Jesus, he uses the word Gehenna. In fact, it is referenced to what you may now know as the Valley of Gehenna, which was a very physical place. So we're gonna look at three layers of meaning of this word. Number one, it's a very real physical location. And, and the Old Testament actually refers to it as the Valley of Hinnom or the Hinnom Valley. Uh, and it's located just south of Jerusalem. And then later it was nicknamed and shortened the Valley of Gehenna. Uh, it was a valley that burned day and night. If you go back into the Old Testament, a few really terrible things happened in the valley of Gehenna. For example, if you were going to sacrifice one of your children to the god Moloch in the burning fires, you would typically go to the valley of Hinnom to do this or the valley of Gehenna. In fact, this is called the Valley of Slaughter in Jeremiah 19 because of, quote, the blood of the innocents was shed there. This was a place where the Jewish people would go to practice disgusting, abominable practices. Uh, this would be a place that was very dark, and, and what would happen is, is the Jews came back to the land after they were taken out of the land. They went to Babylon, if you remember that. They came back to the land, and it turned into a big, fiery garbage dump. So what do you do with the dead bodies of people who were not Jewish? Well, you would throw them in Gehenna. What do you do with the dead bodies of animals? You put them in Gehenna and the temple, all of the extra blood. They had a, a, a little um, a drain that would actually drain all the way into the fires of Gehenna. What do you do with your trash? What do you do with your refuse? You bring them to this very real physical place south of Jerusalem called Gehenna. And if you lived in Jerusalem at the time, over the distance south, you would see the smoke of Gehenna rising perpetually day and night. Gehenna has a second layer of meaning, and this was as a visual metaphor for hell. So what would happen is when Jesus taught on hell, he would look at them and say, look at the valley of Gehenna. And that would be his actual physical metaphor where he would say, you know, as I, as I kind of aware of what happens in Hades, number one, and I know what hell is going to be like, the closest physical thing that I could probably give you all would be the Valley of Gehenna to the, to the south. 
Maggots and worms crawled through the waste. Smoke, the smoke was strong and sickening. Uh, many would say it smelled like sulfur. It was utterly filthy. It was repulsive, and it was unclean. And this is where all the trash went. This is where all the unclean things went. And then the smoke would rise up. And so it was used as, as a metaphor, and Jesus would say, it's like that. Well, there's a third layer. It actually, for Jesus, just became a synonym so that when he said Gehenna, he actually wasn't even referring any longer to that actual literal physical place south of Jerusalem. He used it as a synonym to refer to the physical future place where those who reject Jesus are going to go forever. So when you see Jesus use the word hell, he almost always uses the word Gehenna because he's actually now just using this as a synonym. And so it actually, rather than use the word hell, which is kind of just overused, like we, we mean all different kinds of things when we say hell. We mean the place you go to when you die before the resurrection. We mean the eternal place. Probably the more accurate word to use would be Gehenna or lake of fire or something like that. That might be a more accurate term to use rather than hell because hell is so kind of lazily used. So this morning, what I want to do with that context and background is I want to answer five questions on Gehenna or hell. Number one, why hell? Number two, where is hell? Number three, when do people go to hell? Number four, what happens in hell? And then finally, number five, what does hell teach me about God? All right, question number one, why hell? Hell will be created for three main reasons. Number one, because of sin. Can we go back in time for a moment to the Garden of Eden? Such an interesting place. Angels, God, and people walked together, and they could all see each other and talk to each other. In fact, what you see in the Garden of Eden is that heaven and earth, it was one place. Wherever God was, was heaven, and God took up residence on the earth. And the physical and the spiritual were connected in a way that each one could see the other. When Adam and Eve sinned, it seems that the physical and the spiritual were disconnected. And so now, here are these people. Here's us. Are you guys seeing the spiritual realm like clearly every single day? Are you able to see all the angels and demons flying around or walking amongst us in this place? If God pulled back the curtain and you could actually see the angelic realm, you have no idea what is standing next to you right now. I do know that this is sacred space when the people of God come together to worship. I know the evil one hates it. I know there's protection by the angelic realm on a regular basis. I know that basis. I know that we're in the middle of a spiritual war, but here's the deal. We are not able to see them. There is a boundary that has been created between us and them. And many people would say, and I agree with them, that part of this separation was out of grace for you so that the demonic realm no longer had easy, quick access to humanity. In fact, there were new boundaries and rules set. If you're going to cross the barrier, you need permission by God and you got to play by his rules. And there, there were demons who went outside of the boundaries of God's physical, spiritual rules. And guess where they ended up early? Into the abyss, waiting for the judgment of God. But not all demons did that. Some still walk amongst the earth, seeking to kill, devour, and destroy. 
And it seems that there was a season where this was separated. But it's interesting. You go to the end of the Bible. What comes down and is joined back to earth? Heaven. And heaven and earth are one again. You go from garden to garden, from Genesis to Revelation, and God now dwells physically, bodily, also spiritually amongst his people, and heaven and earth are joined together, and we get to walk amongst angels. Isn't that amazing? But right now, we're living in this middle space where heaven and earth, the spiritual realm and the physical have this level of separation, and this was given to us because of sin, As an act of mercy by God, because if you saw God in heaven in all of his glory, what would happen to you as a sinner? You would be utterly destroyed. But this is not the way it was supposed to be. We are created to be the convergence of spiritual and physical, heaven and earth, all of it joined together at one time, and we're going to explore what that might look like over the next three weeks. But number one, hell was created because of sin because of rebellion. And it appears that once Adam and Eve rebelled, that the abyss was created, this temporary holding place, this spiritual place for demons. Which brings us to the second reason hell was created. Hell will be created for the devil and his angels. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus says this, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared, who was it initially prepared for? Prepared for the devil and his angels. Now this is not speaking about right now, it's actually speaking about the eternal fire that will be created at the end of the world. We'll get more into that in a minute. But hell is going to be created primarily for the devil and his angels, but also because of our sin. But number three, it will be created for those who reject Jesus. Every person in hell will realize that they had everything they needed to not be there. There will not be one person in hell who could wag their finger at God and say, unjust. I'll give you a few simple reasons for this. God is daily screaming his existence in one of three ways. The first is through creation. You just look at this world, and if your conclusion is that this came from nothing, your brain has stopped thinking to the depths it needs to think. Nobody should be able to look at something this complicated and say, accident. Nobody should look at something as complex as the human eye, the human brain, the human nervous system, the human heart, and then for them all to evolve simultaneously is impossible. However many zeros you put at the end of the probability, at the end of the day, the answer is it's impossible. And so you look at creation, and creation is just screaming. There is something big and strong and huge and smart and powerful that is beyond all of this, that had the ability to create this. The second thing you look at is is your conscience, that the Lord Jesus and every single human being, when he created us, has put in this restraint factor this factor tells you when you do something wrong, and part of it is supposed to, is there to, to look your eyes up, pull your eyes upward and say, there's got to be some moral standard because I feel guilty when I do basic things that are not right. The conscience is a powerful thing. And finally, we have the word of God, which declares to us the truth of who God is and Jesus Christ. But here, here's the reality. 
There is a word the New Testament uses for those who reject God, and the word is suppress. Suppress is a really amazing word because what suppress means is when logically something is required, when you know that it's true, when the implications of logic are necessary, the human brain goes, I don't want to deal with that. I can't accept that. And we keep our heads down and we ignore it. And suppression is when you don't look at the scale, even though you know it's going to be way higher than you want it to be. So you act like it doesn't exist and you avoid it, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Suppression. Suppression is being, I'm going to be a little specific here. It's being in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s and beginning to watch your friends die, sometimes of natural causes earlier than you thought, and not obsessively trying to figure out what happens when you die. It is when you are watching your peers lose their life and you go, we'll just figure it out. We'll see what happens when we get there. That is suppression. I do not have a category for somebody not obsessing over eternity when they start to see their loved ones and their friends and their family begin to die. I don't have a category for it, but I do. The Bible gives me one. It's called suppression. It's when you take what is necessary and obvious and logical and right in front of your face and you push it down and you act like it's not a big deal. Hell was created because of sin, for the devil and his angels, and for those who reject Jesus through suppression. Now, number two, question number two, where is hell? And this is probably going to surprise some of you. And as always, I want to be rooted deeply in the word of God. In scripture, hell is on the new earth. I want to I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 66. This is the final verses of Isaiah. And what you're going to see actually is that Jesus's primary vocabulary on hell is pulled from this text. And I want you to, I'm going to put it on the screen. I want you to pay attention to the words because I remember in college learning this for the first time. And I was like, no way. Wait a minute. That doesn't feel right. It felt like a theological conundrum. And I was like, I don't get this. But, but the more I thought about it, I was like, gosh, this is, Genius. Isaiah 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me. So context, new heavens, new earth, after the judgment, this is the eternal physical state for the believer. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I, shall make, that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Little sneak peek into the next couple weeks. What will you do in heaven? It appears you and I worship on a rhythm. Right now we worship on a rhythm, right? Sabbath to Sabbath. It appears there's worship rhythms in heaven. So now we're, we're talking about the heaven. We're talking about the new earth. We're talking about the eternal physical state. We're talking about this place after judgment. Look at verse 24. They, who's they? Those believers who are in the new heaven, new heavens and new earth. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die 
Their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. I want you to just take a minute. I want you to ponder this. I don't understand how my mind is going to understand seeing plausibly people that I love and on the new earth, there will be no weeping and no mourning. I don't get it. Right now, I have a limited, finite understanding of the nuances and the dynamic. But when the scriptures talk about the location of hell in the future, it's on the new earth. And it stands as a living testimony to the righteousness and the justice of God. There is a doctrine in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that lead us also in this direction. The doctrine is called double resurrection. And a double resurrection means that when we celebrate at Easter, that one day we're going to get new bodies, the double resurrection teaches it's not just Christians who get a new body. It's actually everybody, Christians and non-Christians. So the first reference to this we see is in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and if you trusted in Jesus, that's you, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And here's what we see. The resurrection at the end of the world is for everyone, some to eternal life, and some will be resurrected physically and bodily to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus repeats this in John chapter 5, uh, verse 28. He says, don't marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. We read this every Easter. He is risen. Good job. And they're going to come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. By the way, doing good in John's context is always believing in Jesus Christ, in case you're curious. And those who have done evil, rejecting Jesus, to the resurrection of judgment. When we look at the totality of teaching, hell or Gehenna or the lake of fire is a future physical place that is on the new earth. And somehow saints have access to see it. It doesn't mean you have to go, by the way. But it means that the saints have access to this place on the new earth. I don't understand that. I'm not going to try to make sense of it. I'm not going to try to justify what emotionally I will or you will or not experience in those moments. I'm not going to try to reconcile it with revelation that there'll be no weeping or tears or mourning. But here's what I do know. The scriptures aren't actually elusive on this. They actually point all in the same direction. Which brings us to question number three. When do people go to hell? And the answer is after the great white throne judgment. Now, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. It's quite a bit of text, so I won't put all of it on the screen. But if you have a Bible in front of you, open up to Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. This takes place after the second coming, after the millennium, at the very end of the ages when all of history is culminating and there is a final judgment where everybody, believer and unbeliever, is going to have every deed they have ever done judged under the authority of Jesus Christ and his word. 
Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, which is, by the way, where? The abyss. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. This is the final rebellion, the final battle. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. All of a sudden, there's this massive physical shift. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Let me tell you what's happening. The physical, spiritual barrier is being erased. All of creation is going to be burned up. And this is the place of final judgment right before the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Heavens not being where God dwells, but the sky and the stars. Verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. We're going to come back to that. But then he goes back to the original books. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. This is every believer. This is every unbeliever. Everything you have done or thought, privately or publicly, secretly or otherwise, will be fully and publicly exposed. And it will be judged and rewarded according to whether you had done it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Everything. This is all of humanity and all of history. I don't know how long it's going to take I don't know if it's going to happen in a snapshot. I don't know how this is going to work. But here's what I do know. For you and me, for everybody, we will have to stand before God and we're going to be judged. And really when you get down to the end of this, we're going to be guilty, are we not? How many of you are going to have enough righteousness to say to Jesus, I deserve to go to heaven now? Not a single soul. Verse 13 says, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And remember the sea or the lake is a, a metaphor for a place of the abyss. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, Sheol and Hades, they gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then, I love this, the end of this, God's done, he says, death. Hades, and he throws them into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now everyone else, where am I going to go? And, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The only way anybody ever avoids Gehenna hell, the lake of fire, is if your name is written in the book of life. In the book of life, you do not get your name in there by being good enough. 
It does not matter how bad people are compared to you, and you might be better than them. Look, God, at least I'm not Billy Bob or Susie Q. Does not matter. What matters is whether you have personally trusted in Jesus Christ, period. That's it. Now, what about those, you might ask? I think it's a great question. What about those who've never heard the gospel? What about those who live on a far-off island? Here's what I am convinced of, and we see this in Scripture and in practice and in real life. Anybody, anywhere who is willing or interested, they look at creation, they go, there must be something bigger than this. Why worship the sun when something more powerful than this created the sun? God, gods, whatever you are, show me who you are. Anybody, anywhere in the world who looks at creation and wants to know more, God will either send a missionary or what we see happening in Muslim countries all over the world. Sometimes it's impossible for missionaries to get in. Jesus himself shows up in visions to them and tells them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is not one human being that if they don't have access to the gospel, that God will not make sure they get a missionary or Jesus himself showing up in a dream. I'm telling you, there will not be one person in who else that, who says, I didn't know enough. I didn't have a chance. I didn't know. The reality of most of humanity is that we are suppressors and we don't face reality. Anybody who wants to know Jesus will make sure they know. Anybody whose heart is even willing and sensitive to believe in Jesus Christ, who is curious about the reality of it and will worship the one true creator, God will make sure they know. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And immediately after this begins Revelation 21. And it tells us the story of the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And it tells us a story of the new Jerusalem or heaven, the spiritual and the physical converging back into one place, the second garden of Eden as it was where people and angels and God himself walk together. How cool is that? Question number four, what happens in hell? Two things. Number one, furious judgment. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 says this. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins. Meaning, if you've heard about Jesus and you suppress and you push him away, his sacrifice doesn't apply to you. It only applies to you if you believe in Jesus. He says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Revelation 14, 9 says it this way. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. The Bible is unafraid of this doctrine. Number two, what happens in hell? Eternal torment. And this eternal torment has four things. Number one, it's enduring. 
2 Thessalonians 1.9 talks about suffering eternal destruction. Destruction, I want you to hear me, does not mean annihilation. It means ruin. If I take a toy of yours and I bash it with a hammer, it might be ruined, but is it still all the pieces there? The answer is for sure. Ruined, destroyed, does not mean annihilated and ceasing to exist. Eternal torment is enduring. One of the reasons it's enduring is because in hell, you're not just paying for the sins you committed on earth, as if those are the only sins that matter to God. In fact, there's something that happens in hell where you, if you are there, are given fully over to your sin. Most of us don't know what that means because for each one of us, this side of death, we are given restraints as an act of grace by God. Meaning, even though sin corrupts us, um, we're actually not as bad as we could be. Do you know that? And so there are these restraints that God has woven into our lives that you may not know about, and let me read a handful of them to you. Number one is your conscience. Does your conscience prevent you from doing some pretty terrible things? Like you don't want to feel bad? In fact, you're a sociopath because you seem to have no conscience, right? But for most people, let's go better for the doubt. You're not sociopaths. You have a conscience. You have this restraining factor in your mind, your heart, and soul. Number two is just law and governments. That God has created this world and established governments to restrain our propensity to evil. In fact, when you pull the government away, we already know by human nature that people become even more and more evil. You have the word of God. The word of God has formed you and shaped you and, and it plants inside of your soul and it's there to testify against you when you rebel against God. It's a powerful force restraining you. Some, some people, they have rebelled against God, but when they were kids, their grandma or parents sent them to church and the word of God got put in them and it's been a restraining factor in their life, slowing down evil. Family, the family unit is one of the most powerful gifts that God has given to create health and functionality and to restrain evil. All of these get pulled away. All conscience, all law, all government, all family. All, everything that holds someone back from becoming their worst self goes away and they are ruined physically and spiritually. And we're going to explore in just a moment what this looks like. But no person in hell is begging God to trust in Jesus and for a second chance. Nobody. We already have a glimpse of what happens when God gives a sentient being fully over to sin and its demons. It's interesting, we read a passage last week where Jesus finds this man possessed by many demons called Legion. And when they see Jesus, they're like, don't send us into the abyss. They don't say, we're so sorry. Could you give us another chance? Why? Because they are given completely and totally over to their sin. And there is not one ounce of good in them. In fact, what we see is they are given over to vile hatred. Have you ever seen somebody who is just in an irrational state of rage, that is a glimpse into restraints being pulled off. 
That is a glimpse when their logic goes away, when their conscience goes away, they are unrepentant, they are not sorry, and they are given over to rage. Now imagine being given over to every sin, pride, fear, lust, anger, none of them restrained, the human condition given fully over. This is the nature of hell, and when we talk about being ruined, it is not a place where people are begging for second chances. And what happens is that every sin, it doesn't matter where it happens, God is a righteous judge, and they are perpetually paying for the sins that they perpetually commit. Eternal torment is, number two, constant. Revelation 14, 11 says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Annihilationism, which I'm sure some of you have heard, is a doctrine never taught in Scripture that teaches that people cease to exist consciously after a period of time in hell when they've paid for their sins. I would love for that doctrine to be true. It would make my life so much easier. It would be like balm on my emotions. But I'm not bound to what feels good. I'm bound to the word of God. Eternal torment is physical. 14.11 talks about them having no rest, day or night. Eternal torment is number four, emotional. There is Weeping in Matthew 8, 12, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer dark darkness. In that place, there will be weeping. And you might think that they are weeping over their sin. They're not. We know this by the next phrase, which is eternal torment is relational. It says that there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth does not mean I'm in pain, oh no. The gnashing of teeth is a sign of rage and anger. In fact, often when the teeth are being gnashed, it's out of fury and intent to harm. It is an inner insatiable rage and fury that before people in Scripture are killed, there's a couple instances where it talks about they gnashed their teeth and they went after them to harm them. It is fury anger and rage with the desire to kill, harm, and maim. And we come back to this and we say, this is heavy, but hell is not a place where people are begging. Hell is a place where they are given over to the full weight of their sin. And it's something that we don't have categories for now. The closest we get is to our theology of demons, but we don't actually get to see this like we probably don't want to. Here's the last question, and this actually brings us into our so what's. What does hell teach me about God? I've been very blunt so far, just taught one by one, point by point. I have a major concern. My biggest concern, particularly for those who are newer to the faith or younger or who are considering Christ, is that they would begin to believe that God is merciless to the point of untrustworthy. Or that your cultural need, I want you to hear me, your cultural need for God to be nice and fluffy makes you run away from the truth of what God's word says. Or that you would think that God is angry and vengeful, which he is, but like us. Like most of us have never seen holy, righteous anger. And when we begin to see it, it's usually tainted very quickly with selfishness and sin. Another concern I have is that um, anybody would fear that or believe that we are trying to manipulate people to trust in Jesus 
by a fear of hell. I don't really believe manipulation gets people into heaven. But I do think a healthy knowledge of the afterlife is good information to put in your bucket as you consider what you do or don't do with Jesus. So what I would love for you to know about God, and first so what, is God is rightly furious at sin. Let me, let me illustrate. If God weren't angry, and I mean furious at sin, I'd be concerned. You hear about the father recently who found the young man who kidnapped his teenage daughter, sold her into sex slavery, killed him, and is now being sentenced to first-degree murder or tried for first-degree murder. And most dads and moms are thinking, yep, get it. Because you intuitively get fury. When somebody you love, like a child or a parent or a best friend, when there, when there are things done to them in certain categories, like there's a lot of things that you're gonna make me angry, but there are some things that you will push me past my limits. Every one of you know fury. In fact, if that dad wasn't angry, I'd be concerned. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment you're God. You have this really amazing ability to process every event in human history all at the same time and to deal and process every one of them rightly, emotionally, relationally, and everything else. Like right now, any one of you, all of you who all lift your voices up to God, he is able to parse them all out, hear them, be attentive to you, respond, and not just you, but if all 8 billion people on the planet or the 100 billion people who have ever lived on planet Earth, if all of them simultaneously raise their voices to God, every one of them, he could give them individual attention. So that kind of like attention to the details of life, like this is a big deal. 2017, 405,000 people globally were murdered. Every 75 seconds, someone is murdered in cold blood. Every seven minutes, one of those is an adolescent killed by somebody in the world. I think this is such an interesting stat in South Africa. This was a snapshot of one year, 2010, 500,000 assaults in South Africa, one per minute. 2021, abortion. Globally, 95 abortions every minute. And every single one of these, God is personally, fully feeling every one of them. And at the same time, when you lift up your voice to God, he cares for you. 95 abortions every minute. Genocide, kidnapping, Sex slavery, child labor camps, pornography, creation, distribution, usage, adultery. Let's turn to most people's everyday sexual sins, lying, slander, bitterness, gossip, bullying. Can we just take a moment and say, if God isn't angry, I have serious concerns. God is furious at sin because it is evil and it destroys and it corrupts and it kills. And any God who can just flippantly turn, just a, whatever, everyone's forgiven, no big deal. Doesn't matter. Really? Everyone, just like that? Doesn't matter what they do, whether they're sorry or not? Does that even matter? I, I'm actually very glad when I read the scriptures and I see that God's anger at sin is strong 
Because if it wasn't, I would have deep concerns. Nahum 1.3 says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And I love this. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. If your child is killed, do you want him just clearing the guilty for no reason and no repentance? Or do you want justice? You want justice. Here's the second thing I want you to know about God. God is perfectly just. Not one single angel, demon, person in hell will ever be able to wag their finger at God and say, you're not fair. There will never be. Once you know what God knows, on the, on the day of judgment, every person will come to the following conclusion. That was a good judgment. That was just. That was fair. And what we learn is that justice is distributed only ever in one of two ways. Every sin will be paid for either by you in hell or by Jesus on the cross. And one of the benefits of thinking deeply about the doctrine of hell is that if this is the just punishment for sin, have we even begun to comprehend what Jesus bore on the cross, on his body, soul, and emotions when the full righteous wrath of God was poured out on him? We've barely begun to understand it. Lastly, number three. God is unbelievably merciful. No one has to go to hell. Nobody. You, if you've never trusted in Jesus, you don't have to go there. A person on an island far away where nobody knows about them, they've been stranded for years, they've never heard the gospel, the moment they look up, God will make sure they get what they need. Hell is absolutely unnecessary for every single person on planet Earth. So I have incredible news for you. God is merciful. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve. Mercy is not giving you what you do deserve. And every single person, when he opens up the Lamb's Book of Life and your name is written there, after you have seen what you have done through the eyes of the holy, righteous judge, you are going to be mind-blown that he would say, Come with me. You are forgiven, redeemed, justified. You are my son. You are my daughter. And I have prepared paradise for you. Come in. You are going to be mind blown. And that is not something we can just yell louder or make you understand. One day on the day of judgment, when you see your sin in light of the holiness of God, you will believe and understand that you deserve hell. And when you see that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, the, what Jesus did on the cross for you will make more sense than you could have ever imagined. God is merciful, and his mercy flows out of his love and his patience. We say, we look at this world, and it's crazy. Come, Lord Jesus, end all of this now. Every single day, all over the world, men and women and students and children are turning to Jesus and trusting in him for the first time, and heaven is going to be filled with so many people. It is going to be beautiful. If you have never trusted in Christ, 
My goal is not to scare you into heaven. My goal is that you would see the mercy and love and kindness of Jesus Christ who is offering you a way out. That you would stop trying to pay for your sins because you can't. And trust me, you don't want to. But you would trust in Jesus who paid for your sins in your place. And then God raised him from the dead as affirmation that this is not just some dead guy. This is the son of God and anybody who trusts in him has eternal life. So if you're in a place where today you want to trust in Christ, not because you're afraid of hell, because the goodness of God, I want to invite you to trust in Jesus. And today, this is a day where angels celebrate. Do you know why angels rejoice over one soul who comes to faith? Because they know what Hades is like. And they can read the word of God. They can talk to Jesus. They have a pretty clear idea of what hell is going to be like. And they don't want people to go there any more than God does. And they rejoice because they know what you are being saved from. In a little bit, we're going to celebrate communion. All I want for you is this. We're going to get these elements. And all I want is for you to look at this and be reminded of Jesus and for you to be filled with awe that God, Jesus, would bear somehow something equivalent on his body, soul, and emotions to the full weight of the wrath of God of all rebels in hell. That you would hold these things and realize these are just metaphors. They're symbols. There's no power in them. But what they represent is our God bearing on himself our sins in our place so that we never have to. I want you to remember and be filled with gratitude. If you've trusted in Jesus, you will never see the wrath of God. And you will live permanently under the love, kindness, and fatherhood of God's heart. So if you're new with us and you're wondering, do I partake of communion? Um, Have you trusted in Jesus? And if you have, I want to invite you Are you ready to trust in Christ? If you are, partake of communion. Communion is a proclamation for those who have trusted in Jesus. Now, the way we do communion here is it's open. Anybody from different churches, we have a handful of people here from Tri-Village Church and Wheaton Bible and people visiting for the first time and some in town. And I want to welcome you. If you've trusted in Jesus, would you participate in communion with us? There's a column to my right. There's a column to my left. And, and there are elements underneath those columns. There's also some elements in the back between the double doors. In just a moment, um, we're going to have a time of silence together. And then we're going to worship. And during the song, you're welcome to get up at any time and go get those elements. Um, between now and then. And, and hold on to them because at the end of the song, we're going partake, to partake of these elements together in unity as a symbol of being one in Jesus. So let's have a time of silence and thank God for what he's done for us in Jesus.